This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Jason Magson, the Managing Director and Vice President at George P. Johnson, one of the leading experience agencies in the world. He has been with the business for only about five years, and over that time, he has seen the business double in size. And even though we recorded this podcast a while ago, now is the perfect time to release it because we're all going back to physical events again. I'm sure you're happy to hear that over the next few months. And if you want to know how to put on world-class events and experiences, then this is the podcast for you. They've been around for about 100 years as an agency, and they work with the world's top brands to deliver creative solutions and experiences that really are exceptional. We talk about how to create experiences for both B2B and consumer brands and the lessons they've learned in applying the principles of the consumer world and the world of B2C in some of his clients' events. He shares some fascinating examples. We talk about how they think about international expansion for those agencies trying to do that, the framework that he uses to decide how and where and when to expand. By the way, how do you run a global experience agency based on physical events when there have been no physical events over the last 12 months? So spare a thought for agencies like George PJ, who have had to ask themselves some very serious existential questions in the last 12 months. That's really fascinating as well. We talk about the future of experience and what that looks like. Look, this is just a a tour de force conversation with a business leader that's really at the top of his game. If you are interested in such things as delivering world-class events, doubling the size of your business, stakeholder management, international expansion, and simplifying your strategic thoughts so that stakeholders inside your business can really deliver on on your plans, then you will find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Jason Megson. Jason Megson has had 21 years of marketing and events experience at some of the best independent and network agencies in the UK and beyond, including FCP, WPP and Ogilvy. He now runs George P. Johnson, a global experience marketing agency. For over a century, they've been partnering with the world's top brands to deliver creative solutions that make a real difference. Their ideas create, impact, inspire audiences and grow businesses. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Jason Megson, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thank you, Nathan. Absolute pleasure having you on the show. Let's talk a little bit about your background before we talk specifically about George P. Johnson. You became a crew chief for a company called Gallo Glass in 1999, and you say that the business was just starting and you need they needed someone to help them out. You were available, but they needed someone for their physical abilities, not so much their mental abilities. Uh, not the greatest compliment. How, how did you get your start in the world of events? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in, in context, um, at this sort of tender age of sort of 21, I think my physical appearance was probably a little bit more important to me then. So the fact that they were um, looking to employ me for, the, for my uh, ability to lift heavy boxes, um, I suppose, is a reflection of, of where my, my mind was as opposed to uh, where my career ambitions were. But you know, Galaglass were a really interesting business who were born out of um, the West End theatre world where they supported productions um, throughout um, the Leicester Square uh, sort of ecosystem. 
and they'd come to my hometown and they'd they'd said to me hey do you know what we need a we need a bunch of people to come and help us move and unload trucks in the middle of the night and set up stages and do sound and light and um it just sounded like one of those kind of opportunities where i thought where where in fact it wasn't that i was thinking i wasn't thinking um so you you take your chances and i think that's sort of indicative of of a lot of my early career is just opportunities popping up in front of you and then quickly assessing them and saying well why not let's give it a go and and that opened my eyes to what was kind of a fascinating world that i'd never really seen from behind the curtain so to speak uh, you'd only see it from what was broadcast on television or if you were an attendee at an event and and i think that that piqued my interest in the events industry so fast forward a few years and you were approached by Ogilvy about a, a job in, in brand experience. That was a really big step in your career um, and responsibility because I think at that point they were doing a, a sort of a wide range of Marcom's activities. And I think you didn't really have much experience in that department. That must have been quite an eye-opening experience. Yeah, absolutely. I, that, as, as you said, you sort of fast forward and my career had taken a few um, what I would call zigzags, but mostly in the, in the right direction. Um, and I'd been at a couple of agencies, but none that offered that level of scale, international um, footprint, and also linked to that global clients. And then, as you mentioned, Marcoms was always an area where I'd kind of moved on from those early days of just being there for my brawn. And I was more interested in how I could develop um, my career using my brain. And that for me was another sort of step forward into a role where I was sort of instantly able to add value to the Ogilvy group because I had an understanding of how to deliver brand experiences and events. But I was also kind of in almost like super sponge mode where I was listening to all these sort of really interesting people, whether it was on the client side or within the Ogilvy group, who were strategists or creatives. And I was understanding the kind of the positives and then also maybe some of the gaps in creative process and the history of advertising. So yeah, it really opened my eyes to both working with global clients, but then also importantly, understanding how marketing communications is is being driven is driving results for business, but how brand experience can play a role in that. So talk a little bit about what some what some of the main things you took away from that experience with Ogilvy that you're now using to run George P. Johnson. And then also talk a little bit about how, how did you go from Ogilvy to where you are now at GPJ? Sure. So so I think some of the sort of biggest learnings from Ogilvy were probably around that notion of working um, outside of your own home market. You know, it's easy to get a little bit, I suppose, almost blinkered by, hey, I'm delivering four or five events for four or five clients in the UK, for example, or even within one city. But then working on a global basis meant I had to start adapt both my style in terms of um, how I communicated, how I tapped into some of those conversations where you're leading clients and leading teams um, across different markets, where whether it be a different approach in either Asia Pacific versus the approach I might have in North America. So I'm certainly brought a lot of that learning and, and some of that experience into GPJ. And then also, as, as, as I said as well, it's also understanding the complexities of, of big stakeholder groups mm. where you're not just dealing with one client who has one very narrow priority. You're dealing with multiple clients with multiple priorities and frankly, some quite big budgets. 
Um, and that just sort of focuses your mind. And again, I brought some of that to the George P. Johnson role. And then I think in your, your second question with regards to how I got to, to GPJ, again, the, the Ogilvy experience was a platform for me, both from my own career uh, in terms of profile, but then it also meant that I got exposure to both clients, but then a network that was operating um, on a slightly different level. And when George P. Johnson were looking for someone who not only understood the events industry, but had a um, a real understanding of how that drove successful marketing communications outcomes, then it felt like uh, my set of skills were right for how they were going to move the business forward um, from their more perhaps event execution focus. So tell us a little bit about George P. Johnson today. Um, what problems do you solve for your clients? For those that don't know too much about you, tell us a little bit more about the agency. Sure. So um, George P. Johnson has got a really, really interesting history, which I will sort of try and summarize very quickly in terms of where, where it's taken us. So we're over 106 years old now, which is quite a phenomenal achievement in itself for any kind of business, never mind a business within um, events and marcoms. And it was originally born out of the US, um, very much a, a kind of production delivery business that through a couple of entrepreneurial decisions and a couple of very, very supportive and loyal clients managed to become much more global in the 80s and 90s and now has 31 offices worldwide. Um, and as, as a business now, we've really moved up the value chain where we're delivering event and live experience programs, um, as well as thinking and creativity for a group of clients um, that ask us to do those things um, in multiple markets um, across multiple different product lines and business units. So for us, it's, you know, where we add value is we, we interpret some of their uh, product messages, some of their kind of marketing uh, priorities and within the parameters of what they can and can't do, whether it be budget or whether it be to do with their own campaign timelines. And we deliver that in a predominantly a real life environment to bring to life their brand, whether it be to their existing customers, um, net new customers, or even to some of their internal audiences. And, and really we're there to do that sort of interpretation piece where we lift the brand off the page, out of the television screen, um, out of a, of a different medium and really, really bring it to life in, in what is um, probably the, the richest medium of all, which is in real life. Um, albeit um, we, we still have some parameters around what we can and can't do. Can you share an example of what that means for a client that you've generated some, some really good results for? Uh, give us an example of, of sort of what you mean. Sure. Yeah, that would be useful. Yeah, I mean, and I think that what's really interesting is now our client portfolio, um, originally it was quite skewed towards automotive. And I think most people can get their head around the fact that um, a car, driving a car is an experience in itself. So building your market and communications um, framework and uh, delivery mechanism around that driving experience is kind of a bit of a no-brainer. But now our client portfolio is a bit more skewed toward information technology, which in itself can be quite esoteric. So how do you bring to life a network server for an audience in real life? And that's where you know, a company like uh, George P. Johnson and with our work with someone like Cisco, who are one of the world's sort of biggest IT networking organizations, we can sort of translate some of those messages, which might be a little bit dry, a little bit technical, and bring them to life in a way that is 
both digestible for the layman, but then also something which is quite um, engaging and rich for someone who has a deep understanding of the product. So it's, it's, it's trying to, um, I suppose, in different ways through slightly different executions, uh, bring to life some quite complex and dry subject matter in a real life environment. Now, I've seen um, a lot of the work on, on the website and in preparation for this interview. I mean, you, you produce some breathtaking events and displays. Mm. I imagine all of that has gone away now because we're in month 12 of this pandemic. How have you shifted from a physical real world uh, event environment into a, a digital environment where your clients still have the same pressures to sell products and to build brand awareness? They still have a number of business goals. How have you been able to shift that while we're all sheltering in place? Sure. Well, it's, it's certainly not been easy. Um, I'll, I'll say that for one thing. But I think what, what it's been is a sort of an interesting move where you've seen over perhaps the last 10, 15 years, the rise of digital um, in terms of how it is, is pervasive in all parts of our lives. And then linked to that, you'll see a whole ecosystem around digital agencies who have done some really, really great work in terms of working within those channels. What's been interesting for us is that we're almost, I mean, reversing is the, is the wrong term, but in, in essence, we're, we're flipping some of that digital uh, experience over the last 10 years on its head. And we're saying, well, how do you translate what is a real life experience into a digital environment? And you still manage to maintain some of that richness and that impact. Um, which we're so passionate about and we believe we have a bit of a competitive edge. So for us, it's about approaching, um, talking to people through um, screens or mobile devices or in a slightly different environment, but still being sort of true to the fact that we're always looking for richness and impact and we're, we're trying to understand how um, putting ourselves in the shoes of, of those different audiences and their different access points in terms of their understanding of perhaps the message that we're trying to convey to them or um, the information around a particular product. Um, so we're, we're kind of layering on real life experience in a digital world um, rather than coming from a kind of digital first um, perspective. So it's, it's quite interesting and, and we're seeing that it's giving us a little bit of a competitive advantage versus some of the technology providers that are saying, hey, we, we can produce um, X event in a, in, through a digital platform. Hmm. Um, but those digital platforms are quite functional. They just don't offer that richness and impact. So we're, getting, we're having some interesting conversations with clients and starting to, to deliver some interesting world, uh, work in that world. So as far as creating world-class event experiences for your clients are concerned, what are the main components do you feel that make up an event that really helps your client move the needle? Well, I think back to what I mentioned in my previous answer is um, you have to be almost um, kind of ruthless and relentless in your focus on the audience and understanding where the audience is, both in terms of their physical environment, but also their mindset and, and how they might be receiving this message. So, you know, looking for audience insights and thinking about the audience in the first instance is, is a great starting point. But then linked to that, there are some, there's some, just some good best practice that we've learned over the years and we've refined. So, you know, as you would expect in most creative industries, really spending the time and putting in the effort around writing a good brief. Now in the events world, and even now in this world where we're moving towards delivering digital events, some of our client stakeholders are, are not historically that, um, I suppose, experienced and adept at writing great briefs because they're not 
naturally working with an ad agency or with an integrated comms business. So we spend a lot more time with our strategy team kind of over-indexing on how we can support them getting to that great brief. And then linked to that, I suppose the final point in terms of delivering world-class is helping that client to sell that message back internally to their stakeholders. Because in a perhaps a, a different Marcoms channel, a client would be selling it back to their CMO, for example. But because of the, the nature of um, how our world operates and that we are in some instances coaching a CEO of a global industry to come up and do either an online presentation keynote or um, in real life keynote, our clients are, are kind of pitching back the event format to the CEO. And that requires just a little bit of additional kind of mm. polish and understanding about how you can get that buy-in because you need to make some really senior stakeholders comfortable that you're both delivering against the opportunity, but you're not exposing them to too much risk. Now, you've been managing director for roughly five years now. What did the company look like when you joined? And what were the main priorities that you had at the top of your list? I mean, the company was in good shape um, when I joined. And I think that is a great place to start because you're not sort of coming in to kind of rebuild something which just isn't working. It fundamentally was working. It had great foundations, as I mentioned, in terms of our longevity as a business and linked to that longevity some fantastically loyal clients. I think, you know, one of our clients that we still operate with on a sort of relatively global basis, um, Fiat Chrysler, have been with us for plus 80 years, which is just phenomenal. Wow. Um, so those, in terms of foundations, were really appealing to me. But I think in terms of understanding the opportunity, I thought, well, you know, really are we optimising this foundation that we have by adding value to clients? Or are we just there as a really, really great safe pair of hands. And in terms of the sort of safe pair of hands piece, particularly in the event world where there are so many variables, it's really, really important to give your direct clients and indirect clients, as I mentioned, whether that's a kind of a CEO or a chief technical officer or a chief financial officer, giving them the confidence that you can deliver is kind of table stakes. But how could we move from that to a position where um, that was kind of something that was, you know, as I said, something we would do um, on a normal day-to-day -day basis. But how can we add value? How can we show real ROI? How can we start to add real richness and impact to our clients' events? So for me, it was, it was about moving up that value chain. So thinking about our talent um, and how they could take clients on that journey from being kind of functional event delivery people to um, almost brand experience evangelists that were delivering great Marcoms activity as well as events. So you mentioned talent there. What have you learned about what it takes to hire, motivate, uh, retain world-class talent that are able to build your business, but also deliver world-class events for your, for your clients? What have you learned about how best to do that? I think, I think first off, you have to be really, really clear around what the opportunity is for them. Because one of the things which has been an accelerator for us in the last five years, and we managed to double the business in five years, was, um, was to bring in talent from some of the um, adjacent creative industries, and also maybe from slightly left field industries where I felt there were some kind of cross-functional skills that would apply to our business. So you have to sell those individuals in those key roles um, what the opportunity is. And that's where, back to my previous answer, 
it was about saying, hey, this brand experience is a really exciting place to be. You know, lots of noise about how television's dead. All these traditional mediums are under pressure. I don't think any of them are dead, frankly, but I know that they're under pressure and they're having to adapt because they are being disrupted. But I certainly was focused on saying, hey, this is a really almost like an untapped, interesting uh, part of the Marcoms mix where not only can we deliver value for our clients, but you're going to have a bloody good time working here. <laughs> um, and this is why. So getting them on board, selling them that vision, but simplifying it and also understanding that they're maybe taking a bit of a leap of faith to do that is really important. Um, and then, you know, some of the, again, some of those what seem like obvious things, but are sometimes more hard, harder to deliver, which is making sure that they feel empowered to, you know, make decisions, take calculated risks um, through the lens of that they've always got your support, as long as you've given them a little bit of a framework in order to, to take those calculated risks. So I think that's been important. You say the business has doubled over the last five years. What were the main factors that went into that growth? Take us all the way back to sort of when you started with the business. What were the main significant milestones or the main factors that enabled you to achieve that doubling? Yeah, I think it's about um, getting those wins and those wins being the proof points for what was the vision that I set out around um, adding value to clients. So becoming known for not only the delivery, but the creativity and the thinking. So once we had a couple of clients and and quite rightly, I think we focused on our, our existing clients. Once we had a couple of clients on board and some proof points about where we were doing much, much better creative work, it wasn't kind of functional design work. It was genuinely around ideation, where that some of our um, strategic thinking was less about a kind of tactical strategy of where to put X versus where to put Y, but more about how can you truly d deliver some ROI and some business outcomes. Once a couple of those clients started to click and then you were able to play back those pieces of work to both the agency, but then to um, that client and other clients, um, it started to accelerate and you get a little bit of that kind of momentum and domino effect where people sort of say, hey, I want some more of that. I want some more creativity. I want some more really smart thinking. And, and that's how we were able to accelerate. Mm, really interesting. And, and as you look at the next five years of the business's growth, what are the main factors that will enable you to achieve the success, similar success that you've achieved over the last five years? Yeah, just looking at your crystal ball, what does the next five years sort of look like in, in terms of the growth of the business? Gosh, well, certainly in this environment, looking into crystal balls <laughs> is a very, very dangerous game. Um, right. I, I think... I think it's important to focus on the fundamentals and, and those things that have worked for our business and for me, um, and then just looking at them in the context of where we are now. So we've always made a point of trying to understand market dynamics in order to make decisions. But what we have found is that in order to make better decisions in this environment, we need to focus on much shorter time horizons and be comfortable with the fact that that means we need to be much more uh, flexible and have an ability to scale, not just up to the kind of Excel super large um, space, but then also to scale back and to be nimble enough to deliver great ideas for clients, um, really small scale, because there is so much change and uncertainty. So it's almost like you have to just get your arms around um, what is going to be a pretty sort of bumpy and then being positive about it, interesting next five years 
and saying, how can I, how can I bounce forward in a positive way as a business when I'm not really able to do that crystal ball gazing and kind of big strategic thinking that in a slightly more stable economic environment I would be able to do. So flexibility is important and then linked to that, that kind of, and I use the bouncing ball analogy because you've, you've got to be able to um, have a little bit of, um, I suppose, the, the ability to kind of move fast without getting damaged while you're moving within this quite changing dynamic. So that's going to be important for us going forward. And that's also important for your clients as well. I mean, you mentioned stakeholder management is really important earlier. I mean, you're working with some huge clients in multiple regions, uh, very large decision-making units. Um, I've heard that, you know, stakeholder management can take up to about 70% of your time Mm. uh, if you work on the brand side. Uh, And that's why large brands can't move very quickly and aren't generally as as nimble. What have you learned about how best to manage internal stakeholders and your clients as well in order for them to execute the vision and the goal that you've that you've set out for them yeah you know i don't mean to sort of repeat the same thing but it's just understanding the context that they're operating in you know some clients with either a certain product portfolio or because of the um, level of sponsorship that they have internally. So they may have direct access to someone very senior, even though they might be at a junior level. You know that those are the ones where you're able to kind of move faster and maybe um, be braver with, um, as long as they are comfortable with that. And then others who are in much more of a kind of complex matrix system, that's more about the kind of small incremental wins um, and the more marginal gains where you're helping those particular clients and their product group to keep sort of moving up the charts in terms of how they're compared against some of their peers, both internally, but then also importantly, externally, because, you know, what, what you're trying to do is, is support the success of um, the, your client's brands. And then linked to that, it's your client's careers as well. So if you take quite a sort of simple approach to um, making your clients as individuals successful and linked to that their um, product successful, then you should be able to win. And that's how you can understand the kind of complex dynamics of, of all these sort of uh, stakeholder groups that can, as you rightly say, really slow down decision making and, and sometimes make it hard to do brave work. So you say that you're present in 31 countries now. That's that's absolutely phenomenal. How how do you think about international expansion? Um, how do you think about how to move into a new region, whether or not to do that? What process goes into uh, deciding where to open up and international expansion in general? Yeah, I mean, I think from an agency perspective, both the the positive and negative thing of our world is that ultimately we're, we're, we're selling our talents and our skills. And, and in a positive sense, that means that our overheads and our kind of risk profile in terms of moving into new markets is quite low because we're not taking on some of the quite heavy capital expenditure that perhaps other industries might have to look at. But then the challenge is that you've got to be really, really acutely focused on um, how are you going to break into that market with the right set of talent? And that talent usually should be linked to maybe a, a sort of a pretty good indication that you're going to get some client sponsorship to break into that new market. Going into a new market as a completely kind of greenfield player with a load of new talent is um, 
is a rare strategy from an agency in terms of breaking into new markets. So we'd always look for a sponsor to take us, but then we'd look for that sponsor to be an accelerator into growing into that market. And I think linked to both the talent piece and the client sponsor piece, never more so is it been more important to look at um, being culturally aware and understanding that you can never just enforce your kind of agency um, sort of narrow blueprint or even all the parts of the agency culture that you might be trying to take from your home or your founding market into that new market. It has to be um, an agency that has some of those elements of the DNA, but it also has to have an ability to adapt to local cultures. And that's certainly what we've found where we've been successful um, and also where we've you know, had our fingers burnt and learned that um, we need to be a bit more nuanced in our approach to certain markets. Really interesting. You you said in the pre-interview that the experience space between B2B and B2C have merged. Explain that. Well, I think it was it, it was a categorization around, um, you know, when people looked at experience space from a B2B lens, they sort of immediately thought about things like trade shows and big expos and, you know, corporate conference, conferences. And even the language that was used around it was what people and it sort of raises that um kind of very obvious set of cues around well this is a business to business environment mm. um and i think for us it's really important to understand that with certainly with our technology clients where that kind of corporate environment is much less corporate and you're much more focusing on the individual and what the individual's needs are that ultimately um uh, person A in a business suit at a trade show is exactly the, the same as person A at um, a sports event or at a music festival. So again, it's back to my comments around focusing on the audience. You might understand that their mindset is slightly different if they are at um, a corporate sponsored event or they're um, in a sales environment at a trade show where they're trying to achieve certain objectives. But ultimately, there's still it's still the same human being that goes to the football at the weekend mm. or goes to Glastonbury every summer. So um, I think focusing on the fact that we're, um, those things are blurring and you can't have a very, I suppose, for want of a better phrase, ham-fisted approach to this needs to be very corporate and execution and this needs to be all kind of whizzy and show busy because someone's not wearing a suit. Sure. The world doesn't operate like that anymore. So, so there is there should be an absolute blurring between those two. Interesting. And then just related to that, as we come out of this pandemic and things start opening up again, how how do you think about what the business will look like and how the business will open up and the business model will change as we kind of go back to business as usual? Are we going to go back to business as usual? Is is some sort of hybrid model going to be in place? I mean, talk a little bit about the business model as it stands now and as it will evolve as we kind of emerge from the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly at the moment, as I mentioned um, earlier on, it's it's very much focused to how we can bring some of our expertise in creating richness and impact of an in real life experience into a digital space. And I think that will start to smooth off and as you mentioned change into a more kind of hybrid opportunity for us with our clients where the digital expression of a in real life event will become something which is richer it's not just a kind of functional add-on which it was previously it will now sort of coexist with the in real life event and people will 
I suppose, almost require those different access points to the event content, the event experience. But over time, um, as we start to come out of um, a period of lockdowns and we start to see better progress around um, how we manage the coronavirus crisis and, and live with the virus, frankly, people will still crave that in, in real life experience. So for us, we're always now going to operate in a hybrid space. We're never, we're never using the digital as a, oh, this is just a stopgap. Let's learn lots about this and that's great. Um, and then we'll go back to what we always did. It, it will never go back to what we always did. Mm. Um, it will actually just make us a little bit more rounded in terms of our expertise. And I think that will also mean that our clients will have a better understanding about how they can um, almost support and deliver even better outcomes when their in real life event has a fantastic um, online or virtual presence through um, hybrid technologies. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about the way that you run and operate the business. What have you learned about business building specifically that when you started, um, I guess either you were no good at or weren't very good at? And and what have been the biggest growth areas for you over the last sort of five years at uh, George P. Johnson? Oh, well, I'm certainly not the finished article. I mean, I think that's one of the most important things is that you, you got to be... Uh, um, honest with yourself that you that you're still learning, but I have I have learned a lot, um, and I think that um, it continues to be my successes are supported by simplicity. Certainly, one of my um, areas for development, shall we say, hmm. um, which maybe others would say weakness, but my areas of development <laughs> when I started um, at GPJ was I'm sort of relatively sort of predisposed to doing some of the kind of chin scratching strategic thinking and translating some of those strategic thoughts into a very simple message that people across the business at all sorts of different levels can get behind mm. um, is certainly something that um, I've learned to do much, much better, uh, albeit, as I said, I'm not the finished article yet. <laughs> but if you can create some simplicity behind what your thoughts are, and give people some pretty tangible goals about how they're going to get there and, and that that feels a compelling journey for them to take, then you can be successful, especially in a people business. Probably a little yeah. bit um, different in terms of how you might apply that to a business which is maybe more focused on kind of manufacturing and a deep understanding of a physical product. But in a people business, it's get that message you know, right, make sure it's clear, and be you know, very honest about when things don't work and say, hey, listen, we, we tried X, it didn't work. Um, we always had a plan B. Um, let's get behind plan B and move forward. So yeah, honesty and simplicity seem to be things that help me to win. Um, but sometimes um, I need to sort of step back and just think about how some of those complex thoughts can be translated into something that everyone can get behind. So that will be the main uh, thing that will be discussed in your next performance review, your blue sky thinking and, and whether you're able to sort of sort of execute. Really, yeah. really fascinating. So so one more question about this, because I'm, I'm fascinated. When when you're determining the success of, of the agency, I mean, what metrics are you most concerned about? What indicates whether the agency is going in the right direction or not? Mm, gosh, as I said earlier, I, I started the job at George P. Johnson with a view that we could add more value through great creativity and thinking that was underpinned by, you know, brilliant delivery. And if I can continue to support that message with um, wins, 
whether it be Klein X has now delivered um, another two million in revenue, but of that two million in revenue, fifty percent is tagged to our creative team, and another fifty percent is tagged to our strategic team. I mean, obviously, I'd sort of probably package that up in slightly better language. Sure. But if I if I can exemplify the fact that that opportunity is now being delivered against with some, you know, some tangible uh, numbers, but then also maybe with some more softer kind of qualitative measures around perhaps we've won some awards for that work because it's so creative or perhaps it's got some effectiveness rewards because it, it's strategically on point, then that's how I can sort of measure our success and our progress. And, and ultimately, both of those things support the bottom line and the growth of the business overall. Really fascinating. Jason, I could talk to you about about this all day, uh, but we're fast fast running out of time. Sure, let's let's get into everyone's favorite questions now. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests, so I'm excited to ask you some of them as well. A little bit more personal. Who's the person behind the brand? Sort of questions. Because you've got a nice wall of books behind you, tell us about some of your favorite books. What do you read for personal and professional development? Well, I suppose from a from a professional development perspective, this kind of there's maybe sort of three books that I've really enjoyed over the last sort of four or five years. I really like Ben Horowitz, um, the hard thing about hard things. Great book. Um, which um, I just I just love the sort of the attitude and the honesty, um, mm. and certainly that sort of helped me when maybe things have been a bit tougher. <laughs> mm. I also enjoy, and we talked briefly earlier about making sure that your message is clear. I, I enjoy uh, Stephen Pressfield's book, Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit. <laughs> Um, because it just helps me to focus on, on whether my presentations are, are going to land or whether I'm just talking, you know, utter nonsense. Did you read his first one? Um, not do the work. Um, the one where he talks about resistance. And I've, the re- I've flicked through it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so good. All of his yeah. work is amazing. Yeah, by the way. yeah. So that's yeah. a good one for me. And then, and then you know, I, I mentioned a well um, earlier when you asked me about uh, international expansion. And there's a great book called The Culture Map by Erin Meyer, hmm. uh, which is really, really interesting in terms of having some sort of empirical examples of how different cultures and different markets um, operate in different ways. And, there's, and there are different ways to get things done. And so I thought that was a really, really interesting book. So, there, yeah, those are the professional ones. And then, gosh, from a sort of personal perspective, it's, it's all about finding the time to to do the reading or even right. now the listening because audiobooks have, have been a real sort of win for me on sure. the, it, during lockdown. But, you know, I like anything from, um, I, I like a bit of sort of Japanese fiction. Um, and then um, also I quite like kind of Northern European kind of, uh, yeah, kind of murder mysteries out of uh, Denmark or Iceland or Norway. They always, They're they always so going, good. Yeah. 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 Borgen. Borgen yeah. Is, is one yeah. of my favorites. Yeah, exactly. Tell us about Amazon Prime or, or Netflix or Disney Plus or Hulu. What are you watching? <laughs> what are you watching or streaming? There's so many of them these days. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. What are you watching or streaming that's good? Well, I've massively missed the boat on Disney Plus. I've got two young kids. And now every, the last two weeks, every person I've spoke to, it's, they're like, I cannot believe you don't have Disney Plus. And now I cannot believe I don't have it. So that's first on the list. How have you made it through lockdown without Disney Plus? I actually don't know. I've, I've watched, obviously, a lot of trashy kids TV. But I'm... Um, <laughs> Yeah, do you know what? I've been I've been quite geeky on even on iPlayer watching like weird and wonderful documentaries. And that tends to sort of, you know, just help me think about something which is completely different, absorb myself in a different world mm. and uh, keeps the mind stimulated. So I suppose 
Yeah, you know, something obscure on BBC Four iPlayer. <laughs> Brilliant. The highbrow stuff, which yeah, is yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, allegedly. <laughs> uh, tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Oh, gosh, so many failures. I've got enough time. Um, I've, I've always been someone who's tried to embrace um, taking leaps of faith, you know, understanding risks and then, you know, dealing with the consequences. I think that's a really, really important way to move forward in business. Um, there have been a few risks that I've taken without genuinely sort of calculating what the downside could be. Um, some really functional, like the time when I... Uh, converted a, a US Greyhound bus into a mobile bar for a client and didn't do the due diligence on the engine and the bus, you know, I, that was a hundred thousand pound mistake oh that, that was, uh, that was, that was too much of a risk. So, uh, you know, for me, every, every mistake just doesn't stop me from taking risks. It just, just helps me to do the right kind of due diligence mm. the next time. Really interesting. Uh, in the last three to five years, what ideas, behaviors, or, or habits have you added or removed from your life that have improved your outcomes? Um, well, I've got a face that means that people often think that I'm uh, sort of permanently grumpy, but that's just the physical kind of uh, output that it's just, the, I was just born that way. So I've tried, I've worked hard to make sure that my demeanor doesn't affect the mood of other people around me. Interesting. Because I never really knew until I got into sort of leadership positions about how much impact just a kind of a frown or a perceived frown could have on people. So um, I try and keep things upbeat, albeit sometimes my face might portray a slightly different frame of mind, but on the inside, I'm much happier. <laughs> uh, last couple of questions, I'll let you go. What advice would you give to a young person or millennial who wants to start their career in a global experience agency? Some of the, some of the simple fundamental stuff around any creative industry is still true, which is around, you know, be, be, be curious, be looking for different ways to do things differently, not just for the sake of it, but just you know, keep asking questions and challenge things. But then I think from the, an experience agency perspective, be comfortable and happy in the environment that you are almost, uh, if you put yourself in a nightclub, you're not the person on the dance floor um, or the person in the DJ box. You're probably the person in the back um, of the um, nightclub with a, a black t-shirt who has their arms crossed and you're kind of confidently and quite in a satisfied manner looking at everyone else having a good time so be comfortable with being the person that facilitates um happiness rather than being um there with the spotlight on you mm. great answer and my final question jason what does it you know about growing at a global experience agency today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career <laughs> gosh um the um that the people are, are, are the key to any, any success in, and particularly in um, the experience industry sector because we're all uh, very proud of what we deliver. And so being able to very, very quickly put yourself in other people's shoes and understand other people's perspectives will deliver you success. Great place to end. Jason, thank you so much for doing this. Pleasure, really enjoyed it. 
We have been speaking with Jason Megson. He is currently the Managing Director of George P. Johnson. If you enjoyed this conversation, then you can head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 115 such conversations we've had now with world-class leaders in the agency world. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Annie Barber. We would be unable to do this show without our very own deal masters. Christoph Blaschek is our editor. Tyler Baller is our booker slash project manager. Anita Bacon is our head of research. I'm Nathan Annie Barber. You've been listening to Agency Deal Masters. Mm-hmm.